Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You can live a long, healthy life if you're HIV positive. With the current treatments, we can get patients down to being undetectable. The array of options is so much greater today. You equals you. Undetectable equals untransmittable. If someone who's HIV positive, they're taking their medication, they're undetectable, they're not able to pass HIV to their partners. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your HIV treatment is their prevention. Get more information at doitforyoumc.org. Hey everyone, Scott Hansen here from NFL Red Zone. I hope you're checking out one hour of Five Yard Rush, one of the best podcasts on NFL football in the UK. Yo, what's happening, Rush Nation? We are live across the universe. If you're watching on video, you already know who today's guest is. If you don't, I'll introduce him in a second. Before we get to today's show, don't forget to head over to fiveyardrush.co.uk, head over to the shop. Go get yourself a PDF version of the 2021 playbook. Or if you fancy a paperback, head over to Amazon, search the 2021 fantasy football playbook and get yourself a copy over there. Big man, how are you doing? Lovely Mondays. Bank holiday Monday. It's uh, Labor Day over in America. Memorial Day. day. Memorial <laughs> Day. Sorry. We even just talked about that. <laughs> sorry. How are you yeah. doing? No, I'm good. First of all, if you are listening in the US or um, just really anywhere, I think it doesn't have to be US specific. Um, if you were in the military at all, thanks for your service. Um, you know, we're, we're very grateful to those who have served, um, not just the US, but any any military, uh, our military, uh, any military worldwide. Thank you for your service um, and hope that you are, I don't like the word enjoying, but I hope that you are savouring this time off with your family and your loved ones, especially after the difficult year that we have had. Um but yeah, I get my second vaccine tomorrow, so I'll be all jabbed up in 24 hours time, which will be, which will be good. And then, uh, yeah, and then I turn a year older next week, so that's a bit 
uh, a bit <laughs> weird. So uh, one of the last podcasts I'll do is uh, a middle-aged, well, middle middle 30s, mid-30s bloke as they head into my late 30s next week. So a bit traumatic about that. But yeah, I'm all good. But you know, I'm really excited for today's guest because I wrote a chapter in the playbook about something that I don't think is very big in the UK. I think that we've played in auction leagues and <clears throat> I love them and want to do more of them. I wanted to write a chapter for the book about them to promote it more. And then luckily, and this wasn't planned, I wrote that chapter months ago and then Sleeper ended up uh, adding auction to their platform, which is phenomenal because it means more people will now hopefully play auction i thought now this is opened up we've written a chapter on it sleeper are doing it let's get the best guy and one of my very good friends in to talk about auctions so that we can all get better and we can have some really cool auction leagues and we can upskill the uk guys too and, and american guys anywhere around the world are you listening to this uh, i think it's like 42 different countries that subscribe to this so um to upskill them so let's let's bring on the guest because i'm buzzing for this and we also have a massive giveaway as well to promote very soon in fact too because we'll also promote drews it's for the same thing but you know. <laughs> <laughs> but it just means double the chance if you've tuned into this you've bought an extra lottery ticket which is all you want absolutely my mention his name there is the host of the auction brief podcast and contributor for the football guys it's pretty much the auction expert everyone goes to it's drew davenport drew welcome to five yard rush man how are you doing fantastic this is a this is a treat for me as well guys and you know all the things you're saying are so nice i'm not sure if i can live up to it but i'm gonna do my best <laughs> i've known you long enough to know that you more than live up to it you know you've Thank written you. some unbelievable content and um you know you do some great things in the in the industry and uh it's just great to have you on we talk uh quite a bit so i'm pleased and you've launched a new podcast i feel it's a really good time to to get you on and um and talk about that and talk about how how people who perhaps have never done auctions before have done them but haven't done them well can, can get a bit better and i think this is a really good time yeah. to do it as well so um but before we get into that you also have uh, a really interesting uh, day job as well. So um, talk a little bit about what you do for your, your day job and, uh, and a little bit about why that's important and also sort of a side bit of the commentary that you do, on, especially on Twitter, because you, you use your mm-hmm. day job to really explain a lot of uh, things that are very useful for fantasy football as part of your day job. Yeah, well, so my day job is I'm a criminal defense attorney. Uh, I, I started out in actually doing general practice, doing everything, but then I got interested in the criminal defense part of it, went to the public defender's office, which I don't know how familiar you guys are with that stuff over in the UK, but basically I'm just a, a free lawyer for anybody who uh, is facing a loss of liberty in our court system. So I represent all indigent clients um, who can't afford representation. And so I'm exposed to a lot of different types of criminal cases. And so my expertise has been in strictly criminal law for the past 15 years. So that's uh, something, and I've been doing criminal for 20, but strictly just criminal defense for the last 15. So the Deshaun Watson case this summer has been pretty huge. And I've been obviously talking about, uh, about it a lot on Twitter. I'm not a civil law expert, so to speak. I did plenty of civil law before I, I switched over to criminal. And the Watson case is still in the civil um, sphere, so to speak. But it could possibly turn criminal. And there is a lot of allegations in the suits that are quasi criminal. And we'll talk about that later, obviously, but that's 
I got into uh, talking about the law stuff chiefly for guys like recently J- Josh Jacobs and Melvin Gordon getting the OVIs or excuse me, the, the DUI stuff. And, and that's mainly what I wanted to start doing was talking about guys who just had brushes with the law and criminal wise. But then I realized I could expand it to the legal analysis because my day job has prepared me to understand things about that process that most people don't. Yeah. And, and you, you write them in really you know, good threads on, on Twitter. Um, I remember the Melvin Gordon one in particular, um, because I know when you first wrote it, it made me pivot very quickly away on the Melvin Gordon thing, because it obviously was quite a serious one. Whereas with Josh Jacobs, you explained it quite clearly that this is something that, you know, is serious, but could, could potentially go away quite, quite quickly, which is what happened. But Melvin yeah. Gordon one looked a bit serious, a bit more serious. And then, uh, it did. It did sort of go away quite quickly, but I, I still think mm-hmm. that's going to have some detrimental effect on how he's perceived by yeah. his employer. It might not be that it leads to, or it probably won't lead to any form of ban, but it could lead to a potential termination of employment given the situation he was in, because he wasn't a completely innocent party just because he's not going to be mm-hmm. prosecuted. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I explained about Gordon was that a lot of people were saying, well, it got dismissed. And the semantics there are a little bit off because they actually worked out a deal where he pled to something for the offense. He pled guilty to something for the offense, but it was just a different charge. So they actually dismissed the drunk driving charge and he pled to something else. That doesn't mean the case was dismissed. It just Mm. means that he worked out a nice deal. So I I was a little off on Gordon. Um, I was pretty right on on Jacobs, but Mm -hmm. that's how it goes. A lot of times I can't see what they're looking at and and what the information they have is and the conversations between them and the prosecutor. No, but it leads to a wider decision-making purpose. And and in fantasy football in particular, it's all about information. And I think what I like about those threads is it gives you something to think about that you potentially don't have – which is just additional information. And, and like anybody, you, you, it's just adjust your tolerance of risk. You still say, even with Deshaun Watson, and we'll get into that one in a bit. It's, it's how's your risk tolerance and your, your conscience. If you're one of those people that can, I won't say ignore, but can, for the sake of the game, disregard the human being behind it and play Deshaun Watson regardless of the outcome or regardless of what happens. And you think that he's someone that you can invest in. You're understanding the level of tolerance of risk to drafting him. And I think that's the important part. It's just having more data and information and yours is coming from a place of, you know, a unique perspective. So I think it's, you know, if nothing else for, you should follow Drew anyway. And if you're not, you know, make sure that you are, but you know, you'll do these threads and and your podcast as well as starting to pick up on these things. Um, it's well worth covering off. Yeah, I, I think that you hit on the big thing there, which is understanding what risk you have. And it isn't necessarily that I'm always going to be 100% right because practicing law has its gray areas just like anything else. And a lot of people just think, oh, well, there's this answer or this answer. And that just isn't true. There's a lot of gray areas that are difficult. So I just try to throw the information out there and I'm always willing to give you my take on it. But you have to understand my take is really just telling you how much risk are you willing to accept uh, still investing in this player going forward. So how did you get into fantasy football and when was your first auction league? Well, that's, that's a great question. So I, I actually got into fantasy football while I was in law school. Um, and a buddy of mine just t- told me that he had been playing and I didn't have a league to get into. So I got in this 
we had sort of like before DFS was a thing, it was just that DFS style thing where you have salaries on all the players and you can, anybody can have any player as long as they fit under the cap. And that's what I was doing every week. And then um, I got an invite because I was talking about how much fun it was. And I got an invite. My first ever fantasy league was an auction league, which nope. most people can't say. <laughs> uh, and, and I didn't realize how unusual that was until a few years later, because when I walked into that first draft, I was just excited to be there. I had no clue that it was something that was so difficult or looked at as something difficult for other people. And so I, I really cut my teeth doing auctions. That's um, how, how long did you, before you realized there were other formats as well, or did you just think this is fantasy well, football? <laughs> it was not too long. Cause I started my own league, I think two years later and I started my league with a snake, a normal snake redraft. But then, um, as soon as I did that, I think we only did it two years that way. And I had to convert to what I was doing in this other league because this other league was so much more fun. And just the, I realized it right away. Now I had been doing, I think all the way back to eighth grade, which would make me 13, 14 years old. I was doing rotisserie baseball league, mm. which was an auction as well. And so I, I just kind of thought that, Oh, well, everybody does fantasy football with, you know, the normal snake draft. And so that's what I'd started mine out as and, and realized, you know what, this is just not quite as fun. It's just not, <laughs> it's fun, but it's just not the same. So we switched to auction like two years into my league. So I've got to ask this because so we had a guest on in January um, before the Super Bowl. Uh, he's British, but he's been playing IDP for 20 plus years. Uh, and back then was on a sort of really budget website <laughs> that acquired a lot of manual input from the commissioner. How did you run an auction league in 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 that time? Was it because I doubt there was was there a platform that you could even play on, or was it all manual, manual scoring and everything? Yeah, so that's a great question because when we started, we had no um, like you can order draft boards now that are just ready for auctions, <laughs> and you can order the draft dominator from Football Guys where that allows you to track all the salaries and stuff. So yeah, I sat there with a piece of paper and a calculator and did subtraction and adding during the draft. Not even an so, Excel spreadsheet. <laughs> no, oh, no, I don't even, to this day, Excel is like a foreign language to me. Um, <laughs> I, I still, I rely on the draft dominator. And actually that was one of the biggest innovations for me in auctions league, in auction leagues was when I started subscribing to football guys and using the draft dominator. Now I'm not here to show for the draft dominator. I'm just saying that you need something in front of you in an auction that helps you keep track. The dominator was that for me. And it changed my whole existence when it comes to auction leagues. And that, and that's a nice segue because I know you, you mentioned you were a subscriber, but you actually also contribute and write for for football guys. So how did how did that come about? Because obviously you were a subscriber for for years. And uh, yeah. so how how did that come about that you ended up sort of heading up their their auction content? Yeah, well, I I, I tell everybody it was ninety five percent luck, five uh, percent because I was trying to put myself out there. Honestly, I just started a Twitter account in 2018, I believe, and was just like sitting on my couch like, I have a lot to say about fantasy football and I love auctions. So I called myself, I think, the auction expert or something like that when I started. <laughs> and I just started tweeting random stuff and just trying to get engagement. I had like 120 followers and then this Tyreek Hill thing came up in, in uh, early 2019. And people just kept saying what they thought was going to happen. And I just kept thinking to myself, nobody is commenting with any place of knowledge or coming from any situation where they really understand what's happening here. I just need to 
say something about this because what the heck am I doing here if I'm not going to comment on something I really know about? So I put together a long thread about Tyreek Hill and what I thought he was facing. And um, and lo and behold, I get a DM from Joe Bryant saying, hey, you know, we need a legal correspondent. Looks like you're really into auctions. We need that too. Uh, what do you say? And he pretty much, you know, just offered me the job like almost immediately in the first DM just lucky, man. I, I, I can't, I still can't believe to this day I'm, I'm doing it and I'm this lucky to work for such a great company. And, um, you know, like I said, I, I feel blessed. I, I don't think it's lucky. As, as I said at the top, you know, you, you, what you do is unique and it, it, it's just good that, that, and that's what I like about, about the fantasy football industry is if you're doing something, whether it's through hard work or you've got a unique point of view or you do things a bit differently, it does, it does get noticed. And it's something that, I, I we've experienced for years that you know the, the people that come on our show are, we're so blessed to have them but we've only met really just because we we do things a little bit differently to to other sites and other things and we we come at it from a kind of like an education in in fantasy football and we think well we're not the experts we're guys who work hard and get to know the game and and do what we do but we learn through the guys we have on like yourselves and, and many others and I think you know, being able to do something different, it gets you noticed, and that's what happened to you. I'm not shocked at all, um, and it's it's a good thing you did because you. what you said needs to needs to happen. Um, so, I mean, let's let's talk about the the podcast because you've just literally started this. I think you've had three yep. three episodes. Um, I've listened yep. to them all. It's a terrific podcast um, called the Auction Break. Where actually you you've you've synergized the two of them. Together, you, you you spend most of it talking about auction, but you do mention the, the legal stuff in there. So, first of all, how how did that come about? And then give us a, a I guess I give it a really short pitch, but a, a better pitch than sell it a bit better than, than I can. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate you giving me time to talk about it too. Yeah, it's it's brand new, only three episodes in. I'm recording the fourth one tonight with uh, Brian Drake and and Steve Rappin from Fighting Chance. Uh, well, I tell you, it came about because last summer I thought that it'd be fun to just I had a lot more to say about auctions where, you know, I've, I've written a lot of stuff for football guys, but the problem is when you get into writing about auctions, you understand that everything you say is like, yeah, but if this happens, then you got to think this, but if this happens, you got to think this, it's not a stake where you're like, I'm in the early fourth, these players will be available. That's, that's not how auctions are. So I realized that I just had a lot to say that couldn't be written down very easily. So I started producing the two minute videos that I was posting on Twitter last summer on my, on my YouTube channel. And then I got to the summer and said, you know, I like to talk too much. I got, I got so much more to say. I'm going to start this podcast. And and I know that there's a billion podcasts out there. So I asked myself, what was something that I can bring to the table that not a lot of other people can. And so I realized that was still going off of the legal angle that uh, nobody's really got that uh, side of it. And also the auction stuff. And I didn't do that just to be unique, but I just love auctions. And I thought, well, there just isn't enough love and talk and understanding of what it is and why you should play and how you should play. So I said, all right, let's, let's bring these two together and we can do this every episode where we, we update them on legal stuff that's important because when you're going into a draft, if you're like, hey, what do I need to be doing here? Um, but also... I just kind of styled myself as I want to be the ambassador of auctions. I want to just push this angle and everybody that I have on the show so far, only two people, 
but uh, they, they're, they're all over the auctions and they love it. And I think that that's what we're going to find all summer is that maybe the casual player doesn't realize how much all the analysts and writers like the auctions. And maybe once they hear that, it'll get bigger. Absolutely. Because in, in episode two, you're Bob Lung and obviously the King's Classic, which you play in, that Stocks and I were invited to play in last year and that we're playing in again. We're in the international uh, division where so we draft remotely, whereas you guys obviously draft in, in the Hall of Fame, which is an incredible uh, mm-hmm. experience. And one day we will make it over there. It won't be this year, but hopefully in one of the future years, we'll, we'll have to fly out there awesome. and, and do it live because I've heard so many great things that ties into the expo. But um, you know, with, with the King's Classic and what Bob's done since day one is it's two leagues in, in one division. And the first one, the one that always kicks it off is is the auction mm-hmm. draft, which is actually, I think it was second this year, but I think the year before it was first. But this year it was the snake first and then it was the auction. Um, or at least in our division, that's how it broke down. I don't know what it's like in all the other divisions, but it's great that the auction is a feature every every year that you have to navigate if you want to win the, win it all. Yeah, and that's what I love about it. And I told Bob that when, when I had him on the show. I said, I just think it's so cool that you wanted to do auction because I don't think you can get a group of, of analysts or quote experts together and say that they're the champion when they pick the right guys in a snake. I'm not saying there's not skill to a snake. There absolutely is. And there are guys who are really elite at it. And I'm not one of them, but you, I think that there's, I've always said this, the ceiling is capped for how skilled you can become in a snake because the draft sort of dictates what you should do. And I, I think that the skill in an auction you never perfect your skills in an auction. You can always get better. So I believe judging experts and analysts on their auction skill is a fantastic thing to do. And, and I, I, can, I do agree with that 100%. And I think one of the things about Snake, and, and this is why I'm glad now the Scottish Bowl this year is going to be third round reversal, is part of your, part of your <laughs> luck is, is luck, part of the Snake draft. And it's great. And I, I love a Snake draft. But it is a bit luck because wherever you draft, that's a key determinant on how you perform. It's not impossible to win from the 12th spot, but it's much statistically, it's much harder to win from the 12th spot than it is from the one spot. And it's why the one spot wins, I think it's what, 17, 18% of the time with the first pick. It is a high proportion of leagues where the, the 101 wins in a snake. And I think that's something that people don't really bake in or, or factor in or think about. But if you're in an analyst league, having the 101 or the 102 is is a significant advantage over having the 112 because you're not going to get the steals that you would get playing in a regular home league because you're playing with sharks. Um, whereas in the auction league, it is a, literally a complete flat playing field. You You are not at any worse odds to anybody the moment you walk in. It's literally everybody has the same odds. It's like a game of poker. Everybody, from the moment you sit down, everybody has the same statistical odds of winning before the first hand is dealt or before the first player is bid on. And then after that, that's where the odds start to tilt. So I think that's what people should embrace about auctions. And I think if we do nothing else, then... If you've never tried an auction, try it. Believe me, it's a lot fairer than, than a snake draft. You bet. Um, so where can people uh, find 
the the podcast because again it's it is great it's only three episodes in so very easy to catch up and you've had Bob Lang you've had Ryan McDowell as you mentioned you've got Brian Drake and Steve Rappin on this week but where, where can people find it uh engage with it and uh, and get involved because it is a fantastic podcast I've listened to them it's it, you know it's a great listen I've learned a lot already from the short time of, of listening to it yeah, I appreciate that. And we're going to, I'm going to have guests most of the summer, but I'm also going to have some shows that where I'm just running my mouth, but there's some topics I think have to be covered uh, a little bit more in depth when it comes to auction stuff. And I like to do a little bit more auction theory, like early in the summer, and then we get into more concrete stuff later. But yeah, the, the podcast, from what I understand, uh, I'm going through Fighting Chance Fantasies platform. And so Steve and Brian have been instrumental in, in bringing me onto their network. And uh, so anywhere you, you listen to podcasts, Spotify, uh, iTunes, uh, they've, they've got, they're hooked up with all those through Spreaker. So, um, you know, Spreaker's got their own as well. So anywhere you can uh, listen for that. And, and you can also find my YouTube videos on my uh, channel on YouTube called The Auction Brief as well. That's all you got to do is search that. And a lot of those videos from last summer are sort of what we call evergreen videos uh, about auction uh, theory. And you can go back and watch the ones from last summer. Not all of them. Some of them are, are player specific and won't be applicable, but you'll obviously see that right away. And they're just two minute videos and you can just pick up little nuggets in those videos as well. So either spot works great. Amazing. There is a point here in the show notes. I'm going to pull the curtain back a little bit where we were going to talk about something, but um, I'm going to hold off, I think, for a minute because I think there's someone who may or may not gate crash who might be more pertinent to bring on at that stage. So um, okay. let's let's move into some of the auction stuff. It sounds to me like you are pretty much ingrained as an auction player now. Do you do any sort of snake redraft at all or do you just auction 100%? Yeah, so I'm 100% auction except for some of the industry stuff I do. So the no, King's no. Classic Snake um, and then the Scott Fishbowl. And I have a – I run one for my – for my uh, for the public defender's office, for the attorneys in my office, and we do a snake there. But that's the only snake stuff I do. I don't – I was talking to Ryan last week, and I, I try not to be harsh when it comes to snake stuff. But Ryan said, you know, I almost don't want to join a league anymore when it's a snake, and, and I'm the same way. If you're going to invite me to a new league – I already have a lot of leagues, first of all, and so it's got to be appealing in some way that's a little bit different. So if you're inviting me and it's a snake, I'm I'm, I'm probably not going to do it. I just I'm not I'm just going to be the first to tell you I'm not very good at snakes. Uh, <laughs> I just I don't uh, know what listen, it is. So work on it. We we have done so part of the analysis of the book and, and before that before I even decided to put it in the book, I thought it'd be a really interesting concept to draw to have twelve analysts. Um, to and then a group of people who are what I call experienced players, but maybe don't do rankings or uh, write or part of the quote unquote industry. Um, and what I wanted to do is get people to draft in the same spot once a month to chart uh, player movement and actually how things move through the peaks and uh, uh, troughs of the season. So you, you're kindly in that. So I've had you do uh, five <laughs> sneak drafts. I mean, it's not a league, but I, you know, you're not giving yourself enough credit because I get to see all the data. You're a good snake player, whether you would <laughs> want to admit it or not. Your drafts are, are very good. Um, it'd be interesting. I might put some of them together and in some form of a best ball just to see how and run it, just to see what would have happened. Um, I might do that. I haven't fully decided. 
Well, because at the end of the day, it's it's no management once you've loaded everything in. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I might do that just to see actually who would have won every month if it happened. But it is interesting, and I, I send the data across. I need to send this month's because we've just completed them um, across. But I appreciate you doing that because I've got to know you a little bit and other people I didn't know who are in that group. And um, I appreciate you doing it because it's been a sort of a bedrock of the book, part of that, just to track the top 101 players, but then also – just good to just draft and just get an idea of what people are thinking with player movement and changes and seeing Carl Pitts shoot well up the board and uh, seeing other players, potentially Deshaun Watson falling from, from the board almost completely now. So um, I appreciate you doing that, but I, I know it. you've, I, you've <laughs> well, <laughs> I do, I, I do. Cause it, it is a good way. You, you nailed it. It's a way for us to see where players are going, where the trends are happening and, you know, early on, we were getting DeAndre Swift at the end of the first round. And, you know, so I, I love it. And so don't get me wrong. I like walking into a snake. It, it's fun. It's different. There's a lottery to see where you're going to pick. And, but, it, you know, like I said, if I all things being equal, that's not my favorite thing. But but I've enjoyed what you got me into there. That was it's been really informational and it's it's been enjoyable i promise i appreciate it hopefully at the end of the exercise it'd be really good just to split the data and see why people moved so far upwards and downwards and see if we can try and for some players like Deshaun Watson it's going to be very easy to work that one out (laughs) but actually you know like the reason why I, I I had this crazy idea in my head was there's just certain player movement I've never understood um Clyde Edwards Hilaire last year was a great one I don't understand how he went from the third to the first so quickly. Um, there were there were quite a few players who also dropped down boards that I never understood. Marvin Jones last year, I never understood why his ADP did not rise one inch. Um, he was literally borrowed in the eighth round all year. And I was like, I don't get that. I don't get how he is in the eighth round all year. Given what he did, what the year had come off as, um, I didn't understand that one. There was just a few that I didn't get. And I was like, well, I want to see if we can capture this in real time and see what's causing it. So it'd be interesting when the experiment's completed in August, uh, what happens. I agree. So we, I think I've probably done five auctions. Three of them were just sort of with, they were just random leagues, essentially, with people I knew, but they didn't mean anything. One of them was my first ever auction, which turned out to be the worst draft I've ever done. If you've listened to the shows before, it took almost three months to complete. And um, oh, gosh. It, yeah, it was a, it was a 24 hour reset on an auction clock. So every time a bid was made, the clock reset to 24 hours. Um, but the less said about that, the better. And then my, my, I suppose the best auction draft that I've done, we did with Murph was the King's classic last year. And that was beyond. It was, it was pretty exciting from the moment it started till the $1 bid started when no one had any money left. And then it just it just becomes a case of filling your roster with who's available when you make your selection. But the beginning of that was so exciting because it all happens. It, it feels like it happens fast. But then you've, you're three hours in and you realize you've only got half a roster because you've used all your money. And yeah, that was it was bananas. It was absolutely bananas. But for people who haven't done it, why should they play it like you pitch why you think people should play auction over snake. Yeah. Well, and so I get this question a lot and, and I've answered it a lot of different ways over the years, but the first thing I'm going to say, and it's super obvious, but it's just so much more fun. And especially if you can do a live auction in person that 
that takes it to another level. Mm-hmm. But even online, it's just, it's so much more fun. But there are two other things that I commonly point to. Number one is that I really believe that if, if we're in the business of playing a game, fantasy football, that tests your knowledge of football and your ability to parse out what's going to happen in the coming season, I really believe that the test of knowledge in an auction room is far superior than in a snake draft. Because any any old person can print off a couple cheat sheets from a popular site like Fantasy Pros or Football Guys or ESPN and bring them to a draft. And, and you can you can drink uh, your pints the entire time and <laughs> and come away with a good team because all you got to do is look down and be like, oh, this guy's not gone yet, I'll take him. So I believe that the test of knowledge of the, of the sport of football is far superior in an auction room. So that's that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing I would say is that I love the direct competition. And it's sort of like I talk about poker all the time, but it's like when you're heads up at a poker table with somebody in a pot and it's just you two having uh, this sort of, I don't know, uh, battle or, or test of wills and test of, it's all about everything that you love about fantasy football is encapsulated in that little moment when you're bidding against someone else for a player, it's, it's everything. It's what do I think about this player? What do I think about the players around them and how much they've gone for? And what do I think about this other manager that I'm on, you know, going with, what is their opinions about those players? All of that stuff is banging around in your head and who can properly assimilate all that information together and make the right decision. And, and that doesn't, not not every player, you're not sitting there on every player and asking seven existential questions. But what I'm saying is that if you can assimilate all that information together and distill it down, um, that competition, that direct competition between another player, I just think there's nothing like it. The, the rush and the, and the feeling of I made the right move here, I didn't or whatever that I yeah. just think that's 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 amazing. It's so much fun. And you've got to do it in 12 second or 10 second increments. Yeah. Every time somebody yeah. makes a bid, you then have to re go through that information. Like, is he worth another dollar? Do I, do I risk that fund? And then it goes yeah. up a couple when you're like, am I in? Am I out? Do I pull out here? We had the thing with Stefan Diggs last year. I think we got him for either 23 or $27. And at the time, Murph was like, no more than this amount. And we got him on the button. I was like, yeah, I think that's good value because no one was, re- and obviously it turned out to be fantastic. But then that's we paid seven, we paid seventy odd dollars for Michael Thomas, and we might as well just thrown that change into the wind and seen oh, it go away. So, oh, that hurts. Yeah, I but, mean, it balanced but, out. If you if you look at it, if you reversed fair, them, yeah, we'd have been fine with that. Right. Yeah, it it balanced out, but it, it's just a sign, isn't it? It's just one of those things. Um, but I, yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I just think auction drafts, as you say, it's it's just. And the thing is, as well, I don't want I don't want people who have never um, done one before, or who perhaps uh, are quite new to fantasy football. Just because you've not played much fantasy football doesn't mean you can't play in an auction draft. Um, because, as Drew said, he started off uh, in auction drafts, and I think it is still something that you can get into and play with very limited knowledge. It's going to be a bit tougher, but I think as well you'll get it'd be a more rewarding experience as well, because I think you'll learn a lot more, a lot quickly. Um, it is kind of like jumping in at the deep end, but I do, I do want people to walk away from this thinking, okay, I might have only played fantasy football for a year, but actually I can still, if I can find 12 people or 11 people, I can, I can still do a, an auction league and I encourage people to do it. 
It's almost a double-edged sword as well, though, because of what people like us three's excitement and other people in the industry's excitement for it builds it up and hypes it up. And people think, well, I don't want to jump in with them because they love it so much. But it's, it's one of those things where you, it's, our incitement should be infectious. And I imagine, Drew, your Auction Brief podcast fills that void of, of bridging the gap to people who, who haven't played. And so, yeah, you should definitely check that out. I know I will be going forward. What, for you, is the biggest approach to doing it differently from a normal snake or redraft like how do you approach it from a, an auction point of view compared to redraft well i think the main difference is my approach to my team build because in a snake i don't feel like i have control over how i'm going to build my team so what i end up doing is just sort of letting the draft happen to me and and, and this is why i consider myself a poor snake drafter i actually had a draft the other day where I felt like I was ahead of the runs and I was picking ahead of the runs in a best ball I did with, with Brian the other night. But, you know, normally I feel like I'm not doing that. Normally I'm on the other end of that. I'm, I'm on the receiving end of the runs. And that's, that's hard for me because I feel like I don't have any control. And I, I, as an adult, I've developed into this guy who really needs control about those kind of things. And I, I just think that you, so the approach I have is, I know when I go into an auction that I'm going to build my team a certain way. And I know that I can accomplish that because I've already thought about how I'm going to spend and how I'm going to build the team in a snake. I just can't do that. So my main difference is I go into a snake draft, not knowing how my team's going to be built. And I go into an auction knowing exactly how I'm going to come out of the raw, come out, how my roster is going to be constructed. Yeah. I I think uh, it, it makes complete sense because I think with, with the one thing I would say with snake drafts is you can you can do a lot of best balls or you can do a lot of um, I don't want to say mock drafts because I don't think really people do mock drafts anymore. I think people do best balls or do even dynasty startups or whatever. But I feel like the average player is a lot more prepared for a snake draft now. And I I think where draft fatigue kind of sets in is by August September. Well, let's say August after the Scottish Bowl, after a few of the big tournaments are gone, I feel like the drafts can be a bit samey. <laughs> like you oh, kind of know sure. who you're going to walk away with um, if you've done enough drafts that year. And part of that's good in the part of giving yourself the best opportunity to win. Yeah, but then also it, it's also horrendous at the same time because if you've done so many and you get players at the same point, your teams are pretty much the same throughout. And if you not hit or someone or you get a big injury... Every every team is affected because you're you're taking your guys at their ADP and where you see value and stuff. So it is good, Murph, but then it's also terrible. Absolutely, and I think that that's where you can have you you see people in the industry talk about I have this percentage exposure in best balls or this percentage exposure to a player in, in leagues. I think in auction people don't do that as much because you could literally be in two auctions with the same set of people and could come out with a completely different roster. Like that is, that is a, not an unrealistic expectation of it, which is why I think it's, it's so much more fascinating because, and I think this is a key part. One, one of the points you mentioned in your podcast, I think it was the one with Bob Lung, but if it was the one with Ryan, I apologize. Um, you mentioned it is very much like poker in the sense of it's about reading the room. It's about reading the players who are in the room. But it's also, you know, basically the draft is done in in the room, especially even if it's virtual. 
and it's a sense of the players that you're with and the players who are in there that you could go in with a plan, but it could go out of the window very, very quickly based on the information that you're getting from the way people nominate or the way people are, uh, are putting on. So are you, you put it in a really good way in the podcast. Explain to me why it is a lot like poker and, and especially like Texas Hold'em and, and why that ability to pivot in the room is and reading what's going on is really important. Yeah. So one of the things that I harp on constantly is there's a lot of beginner poker players and, and, and therefore beginning auction players who just always think that somebody's out to fool you. And I call them the nuh-uh guys. Like uh, you make a bet and they're like, nuh-uh, and they call. And you make a bigger bet and they say, nuh-uh, I call. And then you're like, well, I have quads here. Like I'm betting because I have a good hand. They just never believe you. So the nuh-uh guys absolutely happen in, in an auction room too. And what I mean by that is a lot of times they're not believing what their eyes are telling them. And I'm here to tell you that at a poker table, people are more interested in fooling you or you know, keeping a poker face, you know, that terminology, that kind of stuff. But in an auction room, they're really letting all of their intentions, they're just giving off their intentions. And it's really obvious. For example, a guy who, um, say somebody gets nominated and the guy looks down and he crosses the name off his list and then he picks up his phone and he's scrolling. Okay, well, you know that guy's out. Like, and here's the thing, that it's not always that obvious, but there's tons of stuff like that. And and when you're bidding against somebody who, let's say, for example, a guy who dominates someone, they always win the player that they nominate. And if they nominate a player and it's you and them and they're the last one there, maybe you can run it up on them. Maybe uh, you want the guy, but the price is going to be higher. These are all things that people are giving off. And when they're telling you, I think it was Maya Angelou who said, people tell you who they really are. You just have to listen. And that's, I believe that in an auction room, at a poker table, people are giving off what they are. And unless you believe that for some reason they're trying to fool you or they have a reason to try to fool you, then just believe what it is they're giving off because that's that's what they are. And a guy who walks into a room and nominates a player and ends up with them on their team every single time, well, I mean, that's pretty easy to exploit, right? I think it's, it's fascinating. I think I've only done one live auction draft in person and i'd love to do more and maybe once post pandemic happens we try and organize a couple because i think that strategic element of being in the room and watching people i've done live ones over um over some form of like video conferencing not zoom but another one and like skype or something and um that's quite fun but it is also much easier to mask tells um because you know, you're only seeing one portion of what's going on. If they're looking down, you don't know what they're looking down at. They could be looking down at their phone and not be interested. They could be looking at a sheet with their auction values. It's harder to read the information. You have to kind of watch the stuff. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but I think um, in terms of for, if we would say we've got people listening now, and I'm sure we do, who have never, ever, ever played in an auction what are some things that they can do to not just try it? Cause we, we can organize some auction leagues to, to get people to try it, but what can, what can people do to 
hold their own? What are some of the things that they can do to be prepared to the kind of prep work that goes into an auction? Because it's very different to uh, a snake. Um, and also, what are just some of the things that during the draft that they can just be aware of and, and things that they can do to, you know, to not be shellacked in their first auction draft? Yeah. Well, it's really hard. So the first thing I, I say, and Ryan and I talked about this a little bit last week on my show, that it can be intimidating. And, and I totally get that. Like, that is not, I, I had a unique experience. Not many people walk into their first fantasy league and it's an auction. So I get that. There's nothing wrong with being intimidated. The great Ryan McDowell said he didn't do auctions for a while, even though he had the opportunity because he was nervous about it. He was intimidated. So don't, don't worry about that. When you walk into a room, just because somebody else has done a couple or there's some people in the room that know what they're doing, don't worry about that stuff because if you have a plan, you're okay. And what comes into that is, I believe, the main thing that I tell everyone is the level of preparation that you have to do for an auction is exponentially higher than it is for a snake. You cannot be unprepared for an auction or you're going you're gonna to struggle. So the level of preparation is higher. And the way I, I make the, uh, the way I, I sort of illustrate it to people is this. If you're in an auction and there are three players still, or there are three players that are, are close to each other in ADP. And player number one has already been auctioned off and he has a price of say 38 bucks. And player number two has yet to be auctioned off and player number three has not either. Player number two comes up for auction. Now you already know what player one went for and you know player three is still to come. If you don't have a fully formed opinion about what the values of all three players are, also what those values do for your particular team build, and what the room itself is doing about those type of players, then you will struggle a little bit because it's not just a vacuum. It's not just, hey, I got the eighth pick. I picked this guy. The vacuum doesn't exist in an auction. Everything plays off of each other. Every variable makes each individual player different so if you're not fully formed on i believe this about this guy this guy and this guy because they're all three close together then when when the when the guy comes up you can compare him to the 38 dollars. but if you don't know what you think about these two guys you don't have a fully formed opinion you're not gonna it's not gonna work so the level of preparation is higher and you really have to understand by going through and and creating auction values or or pulling auction values from, from me or from somebody else and saying, well, I don't agree with that number. This number is too high or whatever and how they fit in onto your team. But Mm. that's, that's a long point. But the other thing I would say too, is that uh, there are some really simple things you can do. And I say this about, again, about poker, you can really learn to be a good poker player in one uh, you know, half hour session with a pro or with somebody who's really good. You can learn to be better than 95% of the players out there because there are some simple things you can do. I did a, um, I do a piece called beginner mistakes for football guys that I believe it's free. It's part one of my uh, series, my seven part series about auctions. So that has some of that stuff in there, but you know, simple things like you got to spend your money, but you can't spend it too fast, that kind of stuff. But what I, without getting into the, to the minutia of it, I really believe that the main thing that you have to understand when you're starting out is that mistakes happen. You're going to make mistakes. I still make them. I've been doing it 20 years. Just 
if you get upset and you, and you think to yourself, like, I just made a huge mistake or I just did something massively wrong, what you have to do is get yourself off tilt, you know, and tilt is one of those things where it's an emotional response that everyone has when they know they've made a mistake or ha have had a problem. And then the response is in your body is, I want to rectify that mistake immediately. So you go and you jump in on the next player or you jump mm -hmm. into the next pot and you're shoving chips around or you're, or you're bidding on the next guy. That's, that's the worst thing you can do. When you make a mistake, take a deep breath, step back, get your emotions under control and just stop bidding on players. Unless it's somebody that you feel like is just insane value or you wanted to have on your team, just stop bidding on players for a little while. Let that tilt bleed off, get yourself under control and then get back in the fight. I think that's, that's really good advice. And I think what would be good here, I've got some myths which I've accumulated from my times <laughs> of playing auctions. So um, these are things that people have told me um, when I've gathered advice about auctions that I've learned to not be true. So um, I hope I that you, I, I hope we can just, yeah, let's, let's dispel some myths and um, hopefully people can use these to not do this. Cause these are all things that I have done in an auction, either through advice or through my own stupidity. So first one is, in order to be successful, you've got to be within the first one or two players to fill your roster. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No. I, if you want me to comment on that, I will, but all I can yeah. say is no. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is what somebody gave me as a piece of advice. It's like, yeah, you've got to, you've got to be in and out quickly. Um, get in, get your players, and get out. I think that it's bad to be one of the last ones because then you're picking at the end because I always want to have a few bucks to just get two and $3 players at the end. Hmm. Cause then you have your pick of who you want when everybody else has $1 players. So I do think that maybe you want to be in a 12 team or you want to be eighth or ninth to finish your, your squad or something like that. You definitely don't want to be last. And I don't think first is a good piece of advice. <laughs> good. Good to know. Um, next one is, you should wait until at least uh, everybody has picked up a player before you start actively acquiring players onto your roster so that, therefore, if you want a specific player, you'll be able to outbid them. Well, yeah, I don't love that either. Um, so <laughs> these, are, these, are, these are good ones. Um, so what I would say about that is one of the things I preach all the time is that you got to have patience, but patience only works to a point. And the reason for that is, I always make the analogy that you would not trade your first and second round picks. So you could have four fourth round picks. Would you? Nobody wants to do that. So in an auction, it's the same thing. It, you can have too much patience and not get enough elite players on your team because you're just sitting there like, I'm going to save my money. And then you look up and the best player left is, you know, Emmanuel Sanders. And you say, whoops, I waited too long. But the other side of that coin is if you grab these guys, so there's, I talk about this thing called inflection points and it's the last uh, article in my, in my auction draft series, because I believe that the inflection points are the most difficult to understand, but they are the most impactful. And uh, what it, my wife's texting me here in the middle. Uh, so what, what it is, is uh, the inflection points are when the draft starts to change. And if you can recognize when the, when the draft is changing, then you can take advantage of it. And one of the ways that the draft, and I don't know if the change is the proper word for the, for the first inflection point, but one of the things I talk about always is 
there are lulls in a draft where people are just uninterested for some reason, or they're hyper-interested and they're holding back for some reason. And so there's a couple of those lulls. One of those is at the very beginning of a draft. So you're talking about grabbing the first player off the board or the second player off the board or doing it or not doing it. A lot of times there is an opportunity at the beginning of a draft. People don't want to spend a bunch of money. So if somebody calls out Christian McCaffrey right away, we're assuming a $200 cap here. And all of a sudden the bidding stalls out in the fifties. And now you hadn't planned on spending more than say 48 bucks on your top running back, but all of a sudden McCaffrey's at 54 and people are slowing down. People don't want to spend that much of their cap right away. And they're still getting settled in. They're setting up their software. They're getting their sheets out. They may not be paying fully attention or they're just not interested in spending that money right away. You can often get a deal right out of the gate and a lot of times after, like, say, a break, you know, everybody goes and has a smoke break, and then they come back, and then people are still settling in, and, okay, let me get re-acclimated to where I'm at. Well, you're already two players in by the by the time that, that manager's done uh, coming off their smoke break and getting back into the draft. There are opportunities there. So I, I think a hard and fast rule like that just isn't going to serve anybody very well. Yeah. You should spend ninety percent on your of your budget on three or four of the top players. It could be top fifteen, top twenty players, um, in order to be successful in an auction draft. No, can't get on board with that either. In fact, I I have a sliding scale. The way it works for me is the smaller the league I'm in, the more I want to spend on my starters. But uh, and the you know, so the Kings Classic was a great example. The fourteen teamer was tough to get. A really nobody left that draft with a full roster of starters that was really that great. You had holes somewhere, so I believe that there's a sliding scale there. That the the deeper the rosters and the more teams and the more players that you have to draft, you need to everything needs to be flatter. So you need to have less top players and less one dollar players and, and try to really hammer the middle. But in a ten teamer, I can get on board with you should be spending a large percentage of your cap on starters alone because it's a more shallow league, uh, but 90%, holy cow, that's, that's, that's insane. That's way too much. <laughs> These are all genuine things that I've either been told or have done. Um, uh, my, my work here, I have a lot more work to do, Murph, you're telling me. No, no, listen, I, these are things from years ago. I have got okay. better, but I also, as you say, you can never master it. It's all about learning what works mm-hmm. and what doesn't work. Um, you should go into a auction draft with all of your set player values written down and you should never ever exceed any of the values you put on paper. Well, so here's my main problem with that piece of advice is that oftentimes your thought about what the top end players are going to go for isn't accurate. You really have to be ready to adjust. And I always say this, if you're going to overpay, you overpay for the studs. And I've never left a draft and said, I feel like I'm going to pick on Emmanuel Sanders today, but he's the guy in my head. So <laughs> I've never left. I've never left a draft and said, "Man, I can't believe I didn't bid two more dollars on Emmanuel Sanders." But I have left a draft and said, "I can't believe I stopped bidding on Antonio Brown, say from you know, a couple of years ago. I can't believe I stopped bidding on Antonio Brown when he was only X amount of dollars, and then he went for this. Boy, what a huge mistake!" So the only mistake I've ever had in overpaying was on the low end. I've never felt like it was a mistake to overpay for us for a stud for a cornerstone for your team. So you, the worst thing you can do. And I think what the heart of that myth that you're talking about here is what the heart of what's at the heart of that issue is being too strict or being too 
rigid in an auction is the easiest way to have a bad auction. You just auctions all about flexibility and it's all about taking what comes to you. So having that rigid mindset that you can never exceed the values, that's, that's going to be hard. It's going to be really hard. And you can get into a room where like, I felt like in the Kings classic last year, I didn't adjust very well to where the middle tier of receivers was going to go. I thought it was going to dive off a cliff like it usually does. And it was real flat because it was a sharp room and they knew we needed 10 starters. So, you know, so again, being rigid there wouldn't have served me well and it didn't serve me well. I had a, I had an uneven draft last year in the Kings classic auction, but um, you know, being rigid is the surest way to have a bad draft. Okay. Last one. You should only nominate players that you're actually interested in uh, acquiring for your team. Oh, this one gets me in the heart. Like I said, I got too many. <laughs> I got a lot of work to do if, if there's people who are thinking of this stuff because uh, I wrote a whole article on nomination strategies alone. And actually, the best thing to do is to always – now, when you get to the end of a draft, it becomes a little dice here. What guys can I put out there that are going to earn a bid that I don't want or what guys can I put out there that I'm going to get for one or two bucks and nobody else wants? That's a hard thing to do. But – in general, in the first three quarters of a draft, I want to be doing, I want to be actively uh, understanding who I want to nominate based on how I can steer the draft. And oftentimes that's going to be somebody you want. And oftentimes it's going to be somebody you don't want. And in fact, I, I encourage people to actively nominate both sides. So early in a draft, when there's a ton of players left, you should be nominating somebody you don't want. And then you should nominate somebody you do want and you should alternate so that people never know. And because there are guys, I mean, you know, this, there are players in my drafts, they nominate somebody, they're going to roster them. And that's just a terrible strategy. So, and and also one thing about nominations and, and I have to get this plug in, you don't control much in an auction. You know, you've got 11 other people in the room and you're all bouncing off each other with, with your, your roster builds and your different ideas about players and, and, you know, you don't control much. So one of the things you do control is nominations. And giving up that control is bizarre to me because a lot of people don't think about them or care about them or think they're that important. They are massively important in how you can steer the draft in your way. It may only be a couple percentage points that you're gaining there, but I think it's massive to control what you can control there with nominations. Love it. See, this is. I think this is why people are so scared of, of auctions because there is so many more layers to it, but mm-hmm. embrace it because this is, as you say, every auction draft can be completely different and it it's so much fun. Yep. Love it. You, you've mentioned roster build and roster construction quite a lot, Drew. Do you, mm-hmm. do you have an ideal roster construction for an auction league that you typically want to either go in for uh, thinking about getting or tend to get for the majority of your drafts? Yeah, so I do, and I again, I'm against rigidity, so I I will switch this up based on different types of formats. I do play in a superflex auction that obviously is different, but if I'm in a, if I'm talking to somebody who's in a normal auction that's uh, just an, a home league, uh, I really love the construction that I went to about three or four years ago, and I've stuck with it since, and it's really served me well. So that is that I'm absolutely going late at tight end and I'm using sort of a shotgun approach where I'm going to draft two or three guys at tight end and uh, just hope that one of them pops. 
and they're going to be cheap guys, you know, three, $4 guys. I might even, like I said, I might even take up to three tight ends, but usually it's two. Uh, and then I'm going to go with a quarterback that is, I'm, I'm not chasing top quarterbacks. I made this mistake and we can talk about this later. I have plenty of mistakes I can talk about, but I made the mistake last year of, of in a couple 10 teamers going after Lamar Jackson real hard, just because I believe differentiation in your starting lineup is so key in a 10 teamer that I decided, okay, I'm going to do this this year and see how it goes. It went poorly <laughs> and I did all right in, in those leagues as far as performance, but it was just a terrible decision. So I'd always been on the lower tier quarterbacks and I'm not saying, so this is a different approach than simply waiting and getting a couple one or $2 quarterbacks. I don't believe in that. I think it's extremely hard to find your your quarterbacks that are going to pop into the top six or eight at the bottom of the rankings at at the quarterback spot. I I know people love to wait and it's like a game of chicken in most snake drafts. Like how long can I wait on quarterbacks? I believe that's created a, what I call a value pocket. And I wrote about this a little bit on what I learned in 2020, because it's really come around that the top guys, like say your Mahomes and your Lamar Jackson, and even say now Kyler Murray's kind of stepping up into there, but your top guys and then your bottom guys. So you've got the top tier and, and then sort of your, I don't know, 15 to 24 tier. I believe there's a pocket of, of value that comes right after the top tier below the bottom tier. Last year, that was, say, Josh Allen and Deshaun Watson kind of territory. Mm. So you you can't go dirt cheap at quarterback, I don't believe, anymore. I think there's enough guys who run and who are top 12 capable guys that you should really be at quarterback trying to find that pocket of guys who are just going to fall below. For instance, in the Kings Classic, I got Deshaun Watson for 9 bucks last year because everybody was on the top guys or the bottom guys. I found a little bit of a just value pocket there is what I call so at tight end and quarterback, I'm pretty cheap. And then what I do is I grab one good running back. So it's what I think people refer to these days as the anchor running back theory, which is where I'm taking one good running back. And then I'm just really going to punt on the second running back spot by grabbing like three different guys that could be my RB2. And those are going to be pretty cheap guys. And then I hammer a receiver. And everybody's been talking about in the last couple of years how deep receiver is and how like rounds four to seven, you know, four to eight are great for picking up a bunch of receivers. That's how I am in an auction. Uh, And in fact, what I do is I hammer it to the point where I get five or six guys who I think can be wide receiver two or better. And I know that's a little bit crazy, but it worked. It works so well because of the number of guys. So when you get in an auction room, there's a, there's a group of guys between say, I don't know, six, seven, eight at wide receiver, all the way down to like 30 so there's a group of like 20 to 25 guys that are all all have a chance to really produce. And I'm trying to grab like five of those guys and sometimes six of those guys. So I'm just I'm going fairly I'm super cheap at tight end, fairly cheap at quarterback. Um, but then I'm hammering a ton of wide receivers and just one good running back. I think it's and, definitely the way to do it. Yeah, I, I think that's a good strategy. And then do you have do you have a a percentage you're willing to go above on because I guess you have a list of prices that you think players are worth. Do you have do you have a position where you won't go over that if it's over what you think is your max bid? So do you have like an average bid that you think is a fair amount for that player and then a like a low bid or a max bid that you just won't step over? Yeah. Uh well sort of. So what I what I encourage a lot of people to do is 
come up with your average auction values and what you believe each player's worth before the draft and use that in your preparation. And then if I'm you, I leave those numbers at home or, or just don't be looking at those numbers when you're drafting. And the reason for that is because I really think that your team build is more important than the raw dollar value that they're going to go for in the draft. Because you could have one draft where X player goes for $12 and then another draft, he goes for 24 and you say, ah, well, that $12 was a great deal. Well, that that's way too simple. And auctions aren't, you know, you can't liken it. A lot of people, what their paradigm is, is the snake. Well, I got this guy in the late fifth. What a great value. Well, sure. In raw auction value, a player may have a dollar amount that is a good value, but doesn't work with your team or your team build or, or work. maybe it was a terrible value in that room. So I think people pay far, pay far too much attention to the raw dollar value that the player goes for. So to answer your question, what I'm more concerned about is what I have written down for the dollar value that I want for that specific position on my team. So for example, a wide receiver two, if I, or let, let's say this for a wide receiver one, let's say I'm going to, I want to pay $30. Now everyone believes that Keenan Allen is, 24 is is worth $24 but I believe he can be a a wide receiver one so if he goes for 29 and I end up getting him for 29 I've accomplished two things number one I've put a wide receiver one on my team that I believe can be my wide receiver one and I've got him for a dollar less than I had said I wanted to pay which was 30 so that worked for my team I could care less what anyone thinks about that $29 price for Keenan Allen it worked for me and my team build I got a $1 discount on what I wanted to pay. I got a guy that I think can be a wide receiver one. That's all you need to care about when you're in the draft. Now, I understand beforehand setting up expectations for it. I shouldn't be spending $39 on Keenan Allen. I get that. But but once you're in the draft, I, I think that you really just have to figure out, does this work for my team build at the time I'm doing it? And what I did, I, one of my videos last summer was about having a what I call a par sheet. And a par sheet is just all of your players, every single roster position, you should have a dollar amount that you want to pay. And then if you're in the middle of a draft and you pay less, like my example, I, I have an extra dollar, write that dollar out in the corner of your paper and keep track. Are you above or below your expectation for the roster that you're trying to build? And so when, when it comes to your question about well, what's the percentage I can pay, it's a really easy thing in the middle of a draft to be like, oh, I'm $9 ahead. I really want, um, uh, you know, Joe Mixon's up for bid and I really want Mixon, but he's going for six bucks more than I thought. Instead of worrying about the $6 or the raw dollar value or the percentage over what you were going to pay, you know, you've got $9 to play with. So you can bid that, that that's going to put you six over, but you still have a $3 cushion there. That's the way I approach it. So you've essentially got a free money pot sitting there to use if you want to go over, which is a good way of doing it. Which again, I guess, works the other way because sometimes you might pay one or two dollars over, so you know that actually mm-hmm. I really wanted that player. I I threw what you throw one last bit out there and you win him, and okay, you overpay by a dollar or two, so you know you just need to make a cut somewhere that if you can get yep. this player for one or two dollars under value, you're back on terms. Yep, that's exactly how I do it, and and I I don't know how I came upon that. It was like honestly, I think it happened in the middle of a draft where I was just like, all right, I got a few extra bucks. And then I realized like a light bulb went on like, wow, this is how I should have been doing it all along. Cause this is really, it's like putting, um, 
you know, bumpers on a bowling alley. You, you can just, you can't throw a gutter ball if you have these numbers where, you know, I'm plus or minus this much at this point in the draft. And a lot of times what happens is I overpay at the beginning of a draft for a couple studs that because the room is, is too excited and they're paying too much money, but you realize, well, I'm not going to get any studs if I don't jump in here. So you end up overpaying and knowing that you're overpaying. And then you realize, well, I got to pull it from somewhere else later. I think it's just brilliant. I think it's it's great. It's so eye-opening to to have this conversation. And I think, again, those that might be a bit scared or a bit intimidated, I hope they can just take a few of these tips or tricks um, away and apply them just to be a little bit better. Because, again, I think the worst thing I see with auction players, you can tell when an auction player walks into a room or even a remote room, and you can tell that their prep is involved going on to fantasypros.com or, or footballguys.com and they've pulled off the uh, auction value sheets and you can tell by the way people bid that oh okay this person's using this cheat sheet i know and then all of a sudden you've got their playbook you know exactly how much those people are going to bid um and i've done that in the draft where i've worked out three people were using the exact same sheet um and called them on it after <laughs> because <laughs> i was like guys i'm not being funny I'm, let me guess you had you were joe mixon valued at 52 dollars right yeah how did you know i was like yeah fantasy pros i've seen that um <laughs> so i know if i go 53 i know i'm gonna win him if i want him that badly like it's it's yeah just don't be that person don't be that person who yeah. if nothing else take five if you don't know how to do auction values take four or five aggregate them out <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. One. <laughs> if you, if you really don't know how to value them, and it's hard, and it is hard. If you've never done an auction before, it is really, really hard. Um, but at least to even three, even if you take three different auction value sheets, they'll all be slightly mm-hmm. different, aggregate them out, make small little tweaks, take a few dollars here, a few dollars there. Just mix it up a little bit because people, especially sharks, will tell you that 100%. they know exactly where you're drafting from. <laughs> you bet. Okay. Um, we're running running close to time here so I wanted to talk a little bit about Deshaun Watson because again we, we kind of covered it at the top we mentioned that you know you've been covering this on the podcast you mentioned you've been doing uh, you know with your background and everything you've got some insights and I know you share quite a bit on the show so I do encourage people to go and listen to that but right now with the state of play things like he's not going to be deposed until 2022 apparently and maybe that leaves some hope and room for people that he might play all year where where do you think currently is the likely scenario I appreciate it's obviously so much is still going to happen and change but what is sort of the if you were his attorney what would you advise him to do and then actually, how do you think this might play out? And then where are you in terms of your tolerance of risk? Where are you sort of valuing him? Are you, were you willing to put a little bit in to see if you get him or, or are you completely out? Yeah. Um, so those are some great questions. Let me take them in the order you gave them to me, which is, um, I think, important. One of the things that you talked about there was the depositions um, and whether or not there's some hope there because he won't be deposed until 22. The first thing I would say is this is not an unusual timeline for a civil case. They were filed in uh, March and uh, beginning of April through, I think, up through the middle of April. And so civil suits are a different animal than criminal cases. Criminal cases, 
uh, particularly, in, I know you guys aren't versed in constitutional law, but we have a right to a speedy trial. I'm sure you have something similar, whatever it's called. But in criminal cases, they have to be done within a certain period of time. That is not the case here. Civil cases can drag on for years and they can go through, you know, lengthy discovery processes, uh, mediations or arbitrations. It can just, they can drag. So the point being the scheduling of the depositions for the women, I believe is starting in September-ish. And then Watson will be in in February of 22. That's not unusual. Nothing about that is really news other than people – you know, people don't understand that it takes a while. So what I would comment on is I'm not sure that that changes what we're looking at here. Okay. So uh, that news just kind of came out because I think it just, it happened and it was a development in the case and we all need to know about it, but I don't think it changes anything. Um, So you ask a really loaded question, but I love the question, which is what would you do if you were his attorney? So I'm not Rusty Harden, and he's obviously been around a while and has represented some big-time clients uh, down in Texas. So I will say this, though. I have had some questions about some decisions that the Watson camp has made recently. And, you know, there I don't need to go into details, and I certainly am not here uh, throwing mud at Rusty Harden. He has all the information. He knows what he's doing and what he's dealing with. But one of the things I said, and this is purely – my educated guess, but I, it sounds to me like he's got a difficult client on his hands because a couple of the things that he did are very counterintuitive to what I would do as a defense attorney. And it's not worth going into a bunch of details about that stuff, but there's just a couple moves he made that I thought were a little odd. And so I'm, it's, it's thrown me off my game a little bit because he's obviously worked. So I've talked to a guy who's a, an attorney down in Texas and he, and he said the same thing. He said, I don't understand why he would do this or that. So we're kind of on the same page. I'm not wildly off on that opinion in particular, but what that does is it changes my confidence level on how they're going to handle this, because here's what I would do. I'm, I'm coming from a point of view that I tend to believe these women, unless there's evidence otherwise, because it, the pattern and the, the sheer number and just the, the facts as alleged in the suits, if they're anything close to what the facts really are, there's, there's definitely too much smoke for there not to be fire here. So I would approach it from a mitigation point of view, which is to try to control the damage rather than to continue to proclaim you're innocent. Now, I know that he has to do that as part of posturing to try to settle the case properly and try to do what he's supposed to do to, to get this behind him. So the attorney can't just go out there and be like, yeah, we did it. Now can we settle this? I, so I get all that. But behind the scenes, what I'd be telling him is, the way that you get your career back and you get your life back is to settle these cases quickly as possible and go to the NFL and say, I have a problem and I'm seeking counseling. And if you want me to talk to young kids about this or do a speaking tour or just whatever you can do to make yourself uh, more palatable to the NFL, because what ultimately is going to happen is no matter what happens with the civil cases, it's going to come down to a PR problem for the NFL. And right now they're very hands off, but if there's a, a criminal case that comes down as a result of this, the NFL is going to jump in immediately and he's going to be suspended. So, which brings me around to your final question, which is, you know, what am I doing with this now? What's my risk assessment? So one of the things I said on my show and where I'm still at right now is this, if you're in dynasty, here's how I'd approach it. If you are in a, in a spot where you can compete this year, I don't think acquiring Deshaun Watson's a good idea. 
if you are rebuilding, I think it's a fantastic idea. I don't believe this is a career ender yet because I do think that there's a way he can handle it properly and, and, and be back on the field in 2022 full time. I think there's a possibility, again, that if he settles these, he can be on the field for most of 21. But I still believe that four to eight games is a reasonable amount of games that he could be suspended if he settles these cases and nothing criminal comes out of it. But like you said, there are so many moving parts still. And the main issue that I've been harping on now for the last month and a half since I heard uh, the, the uh, Tony Busby went to the Houston Police Department and said, we have these complaints we want to officially make. Now, Houston P- Police Department is involved and they are investigating the possible um, criminal nature of these cases. And without getting into too much detail, because I know we're running up on time, some of the suits allege some things that are criminal in behavior. Some are just kind of disgusting, but not really criminal. And so they're assessing all that stuff right now. And the major data point will be if the Houston Police Department decides to press charges, his entire 21 season is in jeopardy, especially if it's a felony. We're talking a whole different situation. Uh, But if it's simply the civil cases and Houston Police Department declines the charges, I think the NFL is still going to sit back and wait. So I think the people who have the hope that say, since he's not going to be deposed until 22 or the women aren't going to start talking until September, I think that that's a reasonable hope, but only a small amount of hope because I really don't think the NFL wants to get to September and still be talking about Deshaun Watson. I think they're going to want to handle it. And I think the reason they haven't done anything yet is because there's just still so much time. We are in the industry have been grinding football now for months, but nobody else is waking up to it yet. That happens in training camp. So I believe that there's about seven, eight weeks left and the clock is ticking on these people on both sides to get, to get a, um, to get an agreement. My opinion is I believe it's going to be settled before the season starts. I believe all the, the, the civil cases will be settled before the season starts. That's just my opinion. There are too many moving parts to say that with any degree of certainty, but right now in a redraft, I have zero tolerance for a Deshaun Watson pick. I'm not doing it. I think that best case scenario, best case would be that he misses four games. And I don't know why you would take that um, in a regular one quarterback league in a super flex. I can understand making him your three or maybe your, your two with a good three. Uh, but I, in a redraft, I'm hundred percent off right now. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting. And yeah, I, I'm with you. I, I, I kind of see that. And I think, I think there is a deal to be done with the NFL. We've seen this before with someone like James Winston, six-game ban, if he refuses to uh, take it to an appeal, he takes his suspension, he got three games, did his three games, was quiet, made what wasn't really an apology, apology. Yeah. Um, and, and then, and then you know, played and everything was what it was. And I think, I think we might see something similar with Deshaun Watson with the caveat that if he gets found guilty, then further yeah. punishment down the line could happen because I think it would be very difficult for the league to suspend him for an entire year or even for eight games over something that he has yet to really stand trial and be accountable for. Yes, he can, they can argue and they will argue that he's brought the game into some form of disrepute and he's brought shame on the league. And, and that is certainly, he will receive some sort of punishment, which I agree with, which I think he, he will, but yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think 
four games seems realistic at this stage. But then you've got the other scenario, which is, does he even want to play? Because he didn't want to play for the Texans. <laughs> so maybe him being banned yeah. is not the end or be all for him other than the cash side of things. Well, but. Yeah, and it adds a layer to it that you have to factor into your equation. Not only does he have this stuff hanging over his head, but he still don't want to play in Houston, and that's not settled. So I don't see how you could be taking him real – be real excited in a redraft right now at all. I think, I think with where he's going now, he's dropped to like the 12th round. I kind of half get it. I think because now at that stage – you take him almost as a second QB in a one QB mm. if you've gone late. So you go, let's say you haven't picked up someone in the first five, six rounds and you get to round nine, 10 and you've waited and you've picked someone like Ryan Tannehill or maybe Trevor Lawrence. You've gone that way and they haven't come out of the gate, you know, and you want to just mitigate that with a, with a Deshaun Watson in the thinking of, well, Arthur Smith's gone from tendency, maybe, um, maybe Tannehill takes a step back. It's not going to be bad, but he maybe takes a step back. Or maybe Lawrence doesn't come out of the gate firing with, with the Urban Meyer offense. So then maybe you take someone like well, that kind of thing I get. But yeah, I wouldn't, yeah, take I, him as my, I wouldn't take him as my primary, especially if you're getting him that cheap. But we'll see what happens. But look, really appreciate you coming on, Drew. The one last thing, we teased it in the middle, but we'll, t- we'll do it now. We were hoping for someone to come along, and uh, I don't think it's going to happen if they hasn't already. Um, but both yourself and us have a spot in the Scott Fish Bowl the giveaway. So let's talk about yours first and the contest that you're doing. You did tweet it from your account this morning. Yeah. Um, so how can people enter to get a Scott Fish Bowl spot from you? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, so uh, the contest is only running until 9.30 tonight uh, because I'm having Brian and Steve on and we're going to do the giveaway on the show. Uh, it's going to be recorded, though, so you will uh, have to listen to the auction brief to find out who won. So um, you can go to my timeline and find that tweet, or it's real simple. You can follow me on Twitter at Drew FBG Auctions, and that'll give you the information. But I want you to follow uh, me as well as my two uh, Fighting Chance uh, co-hosts tonight. And then all you got to do is retweet the tweet, and I'm going to take everybody who retweeted it and put them in a random uh, draw. And then uh, at the uh, end of the show, uh, end of the auction brief, that'll drop Thursday morning. I'll announce the winner as long as you DM me within three days uh, saying that you heard your name on the show. You're in. Amazing. So there you go. So you could, if you're listening to this, have a chance to win the Scottish Bottle spot from Drew and you could potentially get that um, this week. But Stocks, we also have our own spot to give away. We certainly do, and you you came up. Well, I I, I don't know whether I think it was Rich you or did. It, it was Let's Rich. give Rich the credit. Rich, Rich, Dynasty Rich came up with it. He, um, yeah, I will. I'll let you explain it because you were in conversation with him and you just dropped it to me. So I think you'll give a much clearer. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of our giveaway spot, what we are asking you to do is to post on Twitter the most creative five yard rush. Um, video so that is you doing a five yard rush and it could be the most the most creative way possible now that could be in fancy dress that could be in the style of 
a particular running style that could be whatever it is it could be to great music it could be theatrically staged it could involve many people these are just random ideas that literally just pulling into my brain we're going to run this for two weeks so on the 14th of june we're going to announce who gets the spot in our um in who gets our spot for the scott fish bowl so to win it you've got to post a video you've got to post it on twitter You've got to tag us and you've got to tag Scott Fish and Ryan McDowell. So, and I will send a tweet out with this. So um, get those videos going. We will have an independent person determine who has won. So we will find somebody who is going to judge this and they will pick the best video. And it will be down to that person to decide. So won't be stocks, won't be I, no point buttering us up. We're not going to be the... Uh, we might we might offer some suggestions to that person, but well, that person will make the overall decision. I'm, I'm not offering any suggestions, Murph, because I'm not in yet. So I'm going to do my own video because that <laughs> could be the only way I get in. There you go. So we want to see these videos start popping up on Twitter tonight, tomorrow, over the next few days. So let's get them across and let's get them done. Um, really want to see them be creative, be fun. It's for a Scott Fishbowl place. These places are like gold. Um we would love to give it to someone in the UK, but we are not going to just limit this to the UK. It's literally going to be anybody who ever comes up with the best video, that person who is judged by the winner or by, who, by the head judge, that person's going to get the spot. But I would so really love it. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's going to be great. And I think the point is, is that we want to see some engagement, engage with it, comment on them, share on them. Um, tag Scott, tag Ryan, tag us at five yard rush. Um, all the instructions will be in a tweet later on, but we wanted to give the people who are listening to this on the live stream, the, the heads up. So you guys can be the first to really make the statement. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing those videos. So the most creative five yard rush. And again, you take that brief, however you like. I, I will say, although I'm not judging it and there will be an independent, if you manage to get a video to our Twitter before this is published on the platform, podcast platforms because you've been watching on the live stream you may or may not have a advantage over those who are listening later on listen drew this has been an absolutely fantastic experience for me because i am pretty new to the auction scene thank you so much for coming on why don't you let rush nation know where they can find you your articles where you are on twitter basically wherever you are in the world let rush nation know yeah well thanks a lot guys i love these conversations i feel like i I do a lot of repeating myself on this stuff but I, I realize that it's a lot of uh, new information for people who aren't into it. And I just want to continue to push the auction stuff. So thank you so much for having me. Anytime you want to have me on just for a Watson update or just to talk general stuff. We don't even have to talk auction. I love it. I love talking to you guys and Murph. I've really gotten, uh, you know, enjoyed getting to know you. Um, with that being said, um, uh, on Twitter at Drew FBG auctions. And I have a YouTube channel. That is called The Auction Brief, and then the brand new podcast we referenced earlier, also called The Auction Brief, and uh, those drop every Thursday morning, and the videos drop on Tuesday mornings. And um, also, uh, last but not least, footballguys.com, that's where you can find all my writing, and I've said this before, but I don't think that I've ever seen a a seven-part series on auction drafting and theory behind auction drafting. Uh, like the one that I've put up there on football guys, it's called mastering the auction draft and it's free. Uh, the, the 
I wrote it first in 2019. It's been free every summer. I believe that's the plan this summer. And it's going to start uh, dropping here at the beginning of June. And, uh, you know, so go check out my auction stuff. I'll be having auction stuff all summer long on Football Guys. Super. Perfect. Uh, yeah, it's been great. I think we'll definitely have you back on because there's many questions I want to ask about auction. And now, now I feel like we've bridged the gap in communication. You can come back on and answer all my questions because <laughs> sure. once I've got them written down, I'll be... I'll be ready to to pick your brains a little bit deeper before the King's Classic, perhaps. Um, listen, you bet. go follow all of Drew's stuff. It, it sounds incredible. I will start listening, I promise. Murph, this has been a lot of fun, man. As always, Monday night's absolute fire. Rush Nation, don't forget to head over to the website or to Amazon to grab your 2021 playbook. But that's it. That's us done for auction, I guess, 101. We'll come back with more with Drew later on in the year. But Rush Nation, as always, don't forget, keep rushing. to sexual health, just as much as physical and mental health. We want to make it easier for folks to find resources. However they engage with us, there's no wrong door. So it's important that people are able to get access to care that is affirming. Talking about what their sex life is, about their concerns, and to make sure they're healthy. Do it for them. Do it for you, Montgomery County. Your sexual health matters. Visit doitforyoumc.org. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.